Welcome to Funny Old World, a podcast hosted by me, Juliet Kinsman, and Simon London. It's us sharing entertaining conversations which make it easier to better understand the causes, symptoms, and hopefully solutions to the climate emergency with a little much-needed laughter. Because there is a climate emergency. In each episode, we'll be discussing serious topical sustainability stories and chat to some of the world's most thought-provoking experts. And because, let's face it, Everyone's feeling a little sustainability fatigue, so we also need to know the facts. And goodness knows we need a little humour in our eco-anxiety-riddled lives. Juliet is a journalist and a sustainability expert, author and travel editor, and I'm a media pundit, but most importantly intellectually curious, which hopefully means I'll be asking questions that you, the listeners, want to know the answer to as much as I do. Each episode, we're going to tackle a complex topic, weigh up the trade-offs, and hopefully empower all to make better decisions when striving for impactability. These conversations were made possible by Weaver, a sustainability management system based on the framework of the long run. Go to weaver.earth to find out more. So here we are, episode one of Funny Old World, and I'm wondering, why are we even having this conversation? Surely there are enough podcasts already. I don't think there will ever be enough podcasts until everybody owns at least 10 each. Um, I think we're having this conversation because I definitely want to learn. And I've said this to you before. I want to learn and I want to do it in a safe space where it doesn't matter if I'm laughed at. So bringing along people to be laughed at with me <laughs> might be the best way to do it. And there's nothing as side-splittingly hilarious as the climate emergency, impending ex- <laughs> existentialism of <laughs> the end of life as we know it. Nothing more hilarious. Actually, why are we having this conversation? From my perspective, I really want people just to care more about how we can all do more to, to tackle the challenges and just understand it better. And I think as well that sort of by having these conversations, they will hopefully spark more conversations uh, that will empower and inspire people and along the way entertain them a bit. So that's the reason that I think we're doing it. And as someone who's been a journalist, I guess I, I guess you'd say, well, we're both storytellers and I've been doing it for the, for the you know, mo- most of the last three decades professionally. And I'm obsessed with language and, and using it to its full potential and using words in the right way. I think that too many people just sort of, they, they latch onto buzzwords and they don't really think about what they mean. Well, I would definitely be one of those people because I see these words being bandied about. And actually, when I was sort of doing a little bit of planning, yes, this has been planned slightly, I was writing down all the words that I can think of. I and mean, I've got some here. And just looking at the words in front of me, there's a massive word soup or word cloud or word salad. And certain words jump out that are used all the time and I realised I don't really understand what they all mean so I'm going to chuck some words at you if that's okay that's it. and you can tell me what they mean so the one that we hear all the time is eco as in eco-friendly yeah I mean it's mad isn't it that people probably don't even know where that word comes from this big booyah base of of words um well it comes from the word ecology so it's, it's a shortened version of that obviously but where does ecology what is the etymology of that it means the study of life so ecology I do have to spell it out o-e-k-o-l-o-g-i-e was coined by a 19th century German zookeeper Ernst Haeckel he was inspired by the Greek word ekos o-i-k-o-s meaning 
home. So I really love that. I love look, zooming in on where words come from. So I guess ecology, now, now what does eco mean to you? Well, now that you've said that, uh, it means home. And I guess home... Not, how how not, we live here. Yeah. And I guess home is not just where the heart is. Home is this the earth, pla- the planet. Yes. Planet Earth, as Duran Duran sang. This is planet Earth. <laughs> so eco, uh, eco is, is the planet, yeah? God, I, God, I have to thank you for a Duran Duran. And it's not often Duran Duran gets referenced in sustainability conversations. That is why we're here. That's why this podcast has to exist. There'll be a lot more Duran Duran references <laughs> as we go on. It's niche. Good. <laughs> Sustainability? I actually don't even like that word so much. Sustainability. Um, what does it mean to you? Good question. Well, when, as I said earlier, this is a safe space, so you can laugh all you want. But when I hear the word sustainability or sustainable, I tend to think of tuna. Because I think on the side of tuna tins, it says sustainable sustainably fished or so it's a sustainable way of fishing for tuna which i assume means that they throw the small ones back and so that there will always be tuna in the sea so what's great about the example that you're giving is it shows the complexity of it all and i am not an expert particularly in the how responsible particular you know tuna fishing is but what this represents is the fact uh, that sustainability should mean, well, what the official definition means, which is not plundering the stocks, that there's none left, basically. So the official definition for sustainability, there is one, given by Gro Harlem Brundtland when she was Norway's prime minister back in 1987, it's, well, sustainable development is that which meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. So that that's good now. So when we're talking about eco, the ecology, when we're talking about the planet and we're talking about sustainability, I understand now that we want to look after the planet and we don't want to plunder all the natural resources or plunder all the living resources. Well, tuna is a natural. <laughs> I'm putting tuna under natural resource because it is. So we want to make sure that we don't use up all the natural resources. We want to be using the resources that we have in a responsible way so that there's resources left for those who come after us. Basically, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's so interesting about this conversation is there's so much scientific evidence that explains things to us. And yet most people either are impervious or resistant to that information. I hope that this will help a little bit to make some of it more digestible because, yeah, I have to ask you, have you even heard of, have you heard of the IPCC reports? No, I haven't, but I am a sucker for anything that uses um, capital letters and is uh, abbreviated. I do like an acronym as well. So what is the Ipicaca? Can can you imagine how many dodgy acronyms there are out there who are right now just being (laughs) elevated to status of expert just because of you? Anyway. So the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, and it's collective of of the world's leading scientists. And they released, well, they've released a few reports. The, the real paradigm shift or the real headline one was in August 2021, when they declared that the climate emergency, as I call it, the climate change is unequivocally the result of human activity. That's anthropogenic activity. 
Right. Okay. So you, you were say, like anthrop- anthropogenic buzzkill. <laughs> this was fun, and yeah, then you dropped the. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to think if there was maybe a way that we could abbreviate that so that I could embrace it more. But all I had was AA. <laughs> um, you keep on using that phrase climate emergency. So then, are you an advocate of saying to people when they say, "Oh, we've just had a heat wave," or "Oh, wasn't that storm terrible the other day?" of reinforcing to them that this isn't kind of just it's not casual weather we need to use the word emergency i am i think there's so much white noise otherwise i think it's deliberately uh, very dramatic my friend always laughs and says i i managed to say it with jazz hands and lipstick always Uh, even when i order a coffee i will say please may i have um uh, a flat white with oat milk for climate emergency reasons uh and they sort of look at me like sorry what whatever she's fun (laughs) (laughs) the reason i want people to keep hearing the term climate emergency is because it is one. I sat next to someone on a plane the other day coming back from America and I was she was a well-educated, well-informed person. She looked at me and she said, wow, I've never heard of this, this thing, the, the climate emergency. Um, I, I'm sure she'd heard of global warming, but as a phrase, she hadn't. So I think it's important because, let me give you an example. There's, an, uh, there's a display in the Science Museum which shows the front page from every major newspaper in the UK, August 2021, and, and each of those cover images was absolutely apocalyptic uh, you know headlines that really conveyed emergency panic and that's how it should be there were wildfires raging in Greece at the time we just had the floods in the UK I actually lost my home to the floods in London so I have personally experienced the climate emergency and I thought wow maybe that's going to make everyone sit up and notice fast forward I don't know whether a year months I, I still don't think people realize it is an emergency. Okay, a lot there to digest, but I can imagine that there are some people who just listened to that and started zoning out after you said, I was on a plane the other day talking to somebody. And this sort of is my problem, not my problem, but something that I I think about when we talk about climate change and, and things like that is that people always want to seem to catch you out. So people have heard you just say, I was on a plane the other day and go, oh, she must care about the climate emergency if she can uh, afford to fly. It's flying that actually is making all the the seas rise and the polar caps melt and all that. But she's quite happy flying, isn't she? Uh Uh-huh. And it sort of reminds me, back in the 80s, um, I have an older sister and she was a vegetarian and people were ever pointing to her shoes or a belt or a handbag and going, oh, you say you're a vegetarian, but I see you don't mind wearing leather shoes and, and a belt and stuff like that. Huh? You can't really care about animals that much. And this is something, along with what you were saying about sure. sustainability yeah. fatigue, this is something that I think scares people that they're always people trying to do a gotcha moment on them when they're trying to do something good. So basically you're calling me hypocrite. <laughs> I'm not calling you a hypocrite. No. I am the voice of the listeners, so they are all calling you a hypocrite. Right now. So let's let's look at the why. Let's look at the why of that. So absolutely flying planes, uh, aviation is is always going to the biggest be the biggest contributor to our own personal carbon footprints because it's responsible for releasing so many carbon emissions into the atmosphere as we know that along with greenhouse gases is what causes that layer swaddles the planet in this heating layer and that's what causes global warming. So yes, I do fly Aviation itself is actually only responsible, not to downplay it, but 2.5 to 3% of all global emissions. Construction is much, much worse. That would be about 30%. Um, 
I'm not actually a flight shamer as much as you might imagine. I think it's really important we fly less. I do have to fly for my job. I've worked in the travel industry for 20 years. I'm very judicious about where I fly and how. I really have to think about the trade-offs. I think, am I going to speak to an audience of hundreds of people where I can influence big changes? Hopefully. Am I seeing, you know what, all my family lives overseas. Am I seeing family? That's important to me. You know, nothing is black and white. Nothing is binary in the in the climate emergency conversation um, and we can't be more catholic than the pope as my friend hans fister always says he will be one of the guests on on another episode so i do my best but we all have our blind spots do you think i still i still need to be called out what do you think no i don't think you need to be called out or shamed or, or cancelled <laughs> Don't cancel me yet. It's only the first episode. I uh, know. I'm not going to cancel you, but I do think we need to help people or equip them with the the tools to help them defend certain actions they're doing if they're trying to do something in a bigger picture. I, I don't know whether you read about Coldplay, um, but recently they came under a lot of fire, again, under this, what I would call this gotcha moment. Um, I have some friends in the music industry who uh, kind of been around Coldplay or know Coldplay, and apparently they sat down... They're really boring? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, no. <laughs> they sat down with management, they sat down with management, and they said, we want to reduce our carbon footprint. Another phrase that I want to come back on and ask you to explain, but after this, we want to reduce our carbon footprint. We want to be more green another phrase i want we want to be more eco-friendly we want to do stuff that means that we can be more sustainable that probably isn't the right word but i get it no yeah you're talking about the neste they use the the, there's a finnish oil producer called neste yeah so they were basically they have to take their own generators around there's a lot of stuff that you need to do if you're touring you need to you can't just fly commercial flights because you've got a hundred thousand people turning up at stadium you can't afford to be late or you know chris martin can't have lost his hand luggage and everybody's waiting (laughs) around a carousel he's got to be playing in in the coliseum or wherever it is that he's got all those he's got all those hair shirts (laughs) that he needs to carry around with him so what so what they were trying to do is saying yeah we're a huge outfit we travel we take a lot of equipment with us but should we want to do something better. we can do where we can do it better so they tried to use different uh different petrol i believe in their generators that do the lights and everything else and they tried to do lots of other stuff to offset this and all that came about is somebody i think in the guardian did an expose saying mm, coldplay they say that they're trying to be green but instead they're using petrol in their generators which means they aren't ha uh, they they should be flogged and and pointed at and shamed and everything else and that's the gotcha moment that's the gotcha moment that all of us go well i'm not going to try and do that because it means when i get it wrong or or if my best intentions don't work out then i'm seen as a, of a massive hypocrite So there's two aspects to that. Number one, they're trying to do better and they're modeling better behavior as in terms of reducing the the fuel used on their tour. So that's good. They deserve celebrating for that. Number two, are they overstating the good that they're doing? Are they greenwashing essentially? So I am familiar with that story and I know that The Guardian covered it and the whole sustainable fuel biofuel is a nuanced conversation like they always are because that could be an environmental challenge. Um, I know that it can require lots of uh, monocrops being grown, which requires lots of pesticides. And 
you know, that's a challenge. I think actually that was slightly misrepresented in the Guardian story. It's really important if you are going to call someone out to get the facts right. And I think the fact that they were still setting a benchmark uh, is, is helpful. And what it can lead to is something called green hushing, which is when corporations or businesses are too scared to even talk about the good they're doing in case they get called out. But greenwashing, you know the term greenwashing. Are you familiar with that? Well, I'm kind of, you know, I'm going to take an educated guess that you're pretending to be green, but scratch the surface and underneath, you're not really being that green at all. It's all about show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's when a business or or a company, they really shout about the good they're doing, which is a small proportion compared to perhaps the negative impact their business is having. Um, It was actually coined back in 1986 by an environmentalist called Jay Westervelt to describe, I mean, you'll remember, you know, in hotels when they have the little sign in the bathroom, which says, reuse your towel or don't change your bed linens and you'll save the planet when actually you'll just save their laundry bills. That's actually literally where the term greenwashing comes from. Oh, okay. So it's actually linked to laundry. It's green greenwashing. Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to remember that. I, I though, again, just to push back on that, do we shame the hotel that is trying to reduce its laundry bill and in doing so, in some small way, is probably helping the planet? Or do we point at them and say, greenwashing, greenwashing, again, let's let's flog you know, them and cancel them? And This is why the, the, the language part of it is so important and transparency. So actually, you, you, I, don't, I don't know if you'd know this, but 20% typically of, of a hotel's energy bill just comes from their laundry. 20%? So, 20%. So if a hotel said, look, guys... Why don't you reduce your laundry? It helps us with our electricity bills, but we will make a donation to charity. I know hotels that do this as a result of that saving. That would be much more honorable. But if you just chuck those, you know, put the emphasis on the individual, chuck those little notices in the bathroom. Meanwhile, you've got a diesel generator out back, you know, running your entire hotel and you've got maybe no insulation. You're leaking lots of energy. That's a topic we'll zoom in on in another episode. Um, then, then it, then it is a, it isn't a good thing. It's distracting. It's pretending you're doing good when really, overall, you don't care. Right. Okay. Um, one of the other phrases that came up out of my Coldplay story, and you seem to know a lot about this. Well, you would do. Your this is your this is your job, and that is carbon footprint. They wanted to reduce Coldplay wanted to reduce their carbon footprint, and I'm not sure whether they planted trees. Uh, in which to do that. But am I muddling two things up there? I just realised I don't really understand what carbon footprint is. I'm assuming it's using less energy to do stuff and planting trees um, to offset the energy that I'm using. Does sure. does that work? Is that a sure. good thing? Does it atone for all our sins? So you've said you've been very kind. I am a sustainability expert and enthusiast and advocate. Um, it's just the way I was brought up. My my grandparents made me really think about the consequences of my actions in terms of the environment. There's a lot still to learn always. But what I will tell you is that uh, actually the term, the concept of our carbon footprint was invented by a gas company. British Petroleum, BP invented it. So, yeah. <laughs> is this green? Uh, That's is, greenwashing, right, right? Okay, go on then. So back in 2004, they, they introduced their carbon footprint calculator as though to say, hey, you, you Simon London over there, you have a look at your carbon emissions and you sort that out rather than the big company, meanwhile, that's drilling the ocean bed and extracting fossil fuels. Um, it, it's, yeah, the concept of the individual carbon footprint really was an elaborate 
form of greenwash. And was it an actual calculator or what, what, how did I it mean, work? Yeah, I mean, there's so many of them around. And look, don't, don't get me wrong, there's a place for that and we do need to be decarbonizing and carbon accountancy is a big part of this conversation and we will, we will uh, you know, dedicate a whole episode to that. But I think what we need to understand is the big corporations and big business and governments are the ones who can be pulling the biggest levers. Should it be bottom up, us individuals, or should it be top down? It needs to be both. Okay, so here's another thing for you then. You said at the beginning, sustainability fatigue, and I can completely understand that. If I cast my mind back to 40 years, there was an amazing response to what I would have called, or what I still call a climate emergency. I think it was Michael Burke had gone to Ethiopia or Sudan and seen the effects of the famine there and had filmed loads of malnourished um, Ethiopians, Sudanese kids and and parents. And there was a lot of crying, a lot of fly-covered African people. And uh, this news report sort of spurred Bob Geldof to go and make uh, the Band-Aid record, the uh, amazing though now possibly lyrically challenged (laughs) song, Do They Know It's Christmas? And out of the back of that, we had this cultural event, Live Aid, which raised millions and also raised the profile of what was going on on the continent of Africa. And I would say as well, possibly was the the catalyst for uh, comic relief as well. You know, this huge charities came out of this, all of which one could argue was sparked by a climate emergency. Are we not able to replicate that because we put a human face on a tragedy back then and now we don't find these things emotive anymore and or maybe it's just because Duran Duran aren't involved <laughs> on a charity single. I don't know. what What's going wrong here? So many responses to this. One is that, of course, it was recorded in some studios across the road from where I live. <laughs> but um, the other is, is oh, there's so many things about this that's significant. Because, of course, the intention was good. The philanthropy was was, you know, meant to help. And I'm sure it did help a lot of people. But what it did show us is the power of collective consciousness. Um, but... Also, that maybe charity wasn't the long-term solution. Um, it also, you know, these days we're quite uncomfortable with that idea of neocolonialism, the white savior complex, where those in the countries that are doing the most harm are, are you know, making donations on it and, and, and portraying these people who are on the front line of the climate emergency as victims. And I think we need to be much more respectful um, and just the, the portrayal of it. Uh, was was something that I'm very uncomfortable with. I'm just thinking about it actually though and and thinking about how, you know, the whole whole conversation around the global north, as we say, and and our responsibility for helping the global south is, is that a lot of people feel that the climate emergency doesn't affect us. Meanwhile, you know, of the 8 billion people in the world, 4 billion, half of us are already truly on the front line of the climate emergency. In fact, there was even a, a famine the first ever climate-induced famine declared by the United Nations in Madagascar. So what do we do to help them? Well, yes, you know, we can raise funds and, and raise awareness, but more than anything, we need to make, take preventative measures so that they're not in that situation due, due to climate change, don't you think? Um, yeah, I mean, all those things sound great. 
I'm just wondering whether we need to find some sort of poster person for this movement. I mean, a lot of people say about the likes of Greta Thunberg is that it's become sort of a middle class. Well, and I would say to them, first of all, it's pronounced Thunberg. <laughs> Can't help it. Sorry, overactive feedback gland. <laughs> Scandinavian. And they would roll their eyes at you and think... Maybe even flick me the bird. <laughs> yeah. And think, she seems nice. The woman who keeps on talking about the climate emergency whilst I'm trying to buy this coffee. No, but um, they would say... Uh, you know, she's sort of become this poster, the okay. poster person for this movement. Whereas, how do we make it emotive again? So, well, I mean, I personally have experienced it. And, and the UK experienced the hottest ever temperatures and people, you know, houses did burn down. It was dramatic stuff. So those people affected. Um, how do we make people who have not yet been, you know, firsthand experienced the climate emergency this is, this is what we're going to be pondering for these six episodes. I'll tell you someone we should speak to, Mitzi Janelle Tan. I absolutely adore her. She's in Manila in the Philippines. She organizes meetings for youth advocates for climate action. And I honestly, I hope if we just have a quick chat with her, people will really lean into the conversation, hear what it's like to be affected by typhoons. She really does a lot to amplify the voices of indigenous people as well. I am all ears. Let's have a listen. Hey everyone, I'm Mitzi Janelle Tan. I am a full-time climate justice activist with Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines, which is the Fridays for Future of my country, and I also do a lot of work with Fridays for Future International. I remember the first time that I started thinking about climate change. It was when I was a lot younger, and I was huddled in my room. Flood water started coming in, and there was no electricity, and my parents picked me up brought me to the living room and we stood there with a candle because there was no electricity and we were listening to a battery powered radio trying to figure out if we had to evacuate from our city. And that is what the climate reality looks like in a country like the Philippines, one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to the climate crisis, for someone who is already privileged. It is a reality in our country that communities are consumed by floods, that people are stranded on rooftops sometimes for days calling for help. And despite all that, so many people don't even know what climate change is. So while that was the first time I thought about climate change, I didn't think about that term until much later on, because the way that climate education happens in our country is very foreign and technical and alienating. It talks about the polar bears and the ice caps, but not about the people who are already affected, not about the people in my country, not about the things that we're already experiencing. And so a lot of what I do is actually raising awareness about the climate crisis, making sure that people are empowered to act, because that's what happened with me when I first talked to the indigenous peoples in 2017. And that was when I committed myself to becoming an activist. That was when I decided that this is what I have to do. This is what I must choose to do every day. Because when I was talking to that Lumad indigenous leader, he told me about how they were being harassed and displaced and killed and militarized because the Philippines is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for environmental defenders and activists. Then with a smile, he said, that's why we have no choice but to fight back. And my bubble of privilege burst. And I realized that even if it seemed like it didn't affect me because I was a privileged person, in all honesty, it did affect me. And the, he's right, this is our planet, this is our home, this is where we live. We have no choice but to fight back. And so, Everything that I do is to ensure that people are empowered to act. 
the joy in the collective action that we're having today so, the, so that we can push for systemic change because we have a systemic problem. And so this awareness raising looks different depending on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to small farmers, I talk to them about soil fertility and the changing weather patterns. If I'm talking to fisher folk, it's about sea level rising. If I'm talking to Filipino youth, it's about what we're experiencing. If I'm talking to youth of the global north, it's about how the problem isn't the problem of the future, but something that's already happening today. If I'm talking to older people from the global north, it's talking about how even if you're not affected yet, your children will be, your grandchildren will be. And people like me across the globe are already affected. Families are already affected. Children, sisters, grandchildren are already affected. And that's why we need everyone on board because this is a global problem. So we need a global solution. The only way we'll be able to achieve climate justice is by resisting as one planet together, standing in solidarity and really listening to the most marginalized people who have always been consistently left behind because that's what brought us to the climate crisis. This system that's so focused on profit and the benefits for a few and leaving behind the voices of the most impacted, of the most affected, of the most marginalized. And so the opposite of that would be the solution, having solutions and policies and change that are led by the people who are most impacted. And to be able to do that, we need everyone on board. We need everyone coming together, listening to each other, you know, even going as far as becoming friends with each other. Because I think once you care about someone, that's when you start doing things more. And I, that's why I think that you have to make sure that when you're doing something, you find what you care about because it's always going to be impacted by the climate crisis, because the climate crisis will eventually affect everyone if it's not affecting you yet. But it won't affect everyone in the same level. And that's why we have to expand our care, our love, our community from the ones where we know, the people that we're seeing, to across the globe, because we are one community across the earth. We are one people. And so we need to come together and fight for climate justice. Thank you so much. I mean, everything you say resonates, of course. What would you directly say to somebody who lives, well, I'm in the United Kingdom and we're speaking, um, I actually experienced the floods firsthand in my home here, so I understand it. But what about someone here who has no firsthand experience or someone in America who lives in a little bubble, everything's comfortable and good for them, they cannot relate to someone on the front line. What would you say to make them care? Do you remember that time when you felt scared as a child. Maybe it was the dark, or you thought there was a monster under your bed, or there was an exam coming the next day and you didn't know how to answer it. That feeling of helplessness, that feeling that you've been abandoned, maybe you got lost at some point, but that feeling of being alone and you're scared and you don't know what to do, you don't know what you can do, and the people who seem to be able to do something, they're not doing anything, they're just there. That is the feeling of the climate crisis. That is the feeling that millions of people across the world are already feeling today, but multiplied, intensified, amplified, because we know that we have this anxiety, this trauma, not just because of the extreme weather events, but because world leaders aren't doing anything to change something, aren't doing anything so that we don't have to experience this. And so the opposite of that is climate justice is remembering that happiest moment where you felt safe. That is what we want for everyone. That is what climate justice looks like. It feels like it should be a basic human right just to feel safe. And so many people don't. Um, you touched upon indigenous people, 
perhaps could you also just tell me why is the is it so important to acknowledge the protection of indigenous people and why this is such a key part of the climate conversation it's so important that we talk to our indigenous peoples listen to them learn from them and let them lead because they are the ones who are protecting the planet not just because it's the environment but because it's part of their life it's part of their livelihoods it's part of their culture I'd extend it to not just indigenous peoples, it's environmental defenders. So it's also small fisher folk and small farmers. And they have a saying here, and I think it's not just here, I think it's across the world where land is life, or I guess for fisher folk, it's the ocean is life. And that's why they're protecting it because they understand and they're still in touch with that sense that humans, all humans should have, that we're not owners of the planet. These aren't natural resources, quote unquote, to use. We are an ecosystem. We are part of the planet. We're here to take from the planet, but also give back. It's supposed to be a relationship. We're not supposed to be taking. We're supposed to be taking care of it. Wasn't that amazing, talking to her? Yeah, that was amazing. And as you said, she's living with it every day. She's on the front line. And just hearing how people reacted when we had those sort of two days of 40 degree weather and fires and how people react to floods and everything else that's kind of that now is her her everyday existence isn't it it's not sort of um get ready this is coming down the line this is tomorrow it's going to be the same as it was yesterday people are going to be burnt or drowned or die in some way because of the weather yeah i mean it's really like watching a catastrophic car crash in slow motion for those of us that work in sustainability because this will affect more and more people a very strong voice and he does actually there's some great little uh interviews and footage with him chatting to greta is george mombio his book feral uh really shifted some thinking around uh what are the causes uh, of of climate change he talks about rewilding he challenges conventional agriculture he calls he actually calls farming one of the biggest causes so you can imagine that's quite divisive he's got book out regenesis feeding the world without devouring the planet and that is linked to the other buzzword we haven't touched on which is of course regenerative or regeneration i know all about regeneration i of course am a doctor who fan it's when after a few seasons the actor gets tired of playing the Time Lord and decides that there are much more uh, lucrative jobs out there if they step out of the TARDIS. I'm being facetious, of course. So regeneration, I'm assuming it's, is it linked to sustainability? Well, I think when you look at the word sustainability, I don't even really like it. Sustaining things, or do we need to regenerate? Do we need to restore? Do we need to repair? These, these are the words we really need in our vocabulary. Okay. Uh, let's have a listen to him. I just want to say one thing when you say, of course, Jean- Georges Mombier. Is this what he's been doing for years? I love how you've given his first name a French accent as well, Georges Mombier. <laughs> um, George is quite a sort of punchy, he's a, he's a Guardian columnist. He says things which can be very provocative. I really love his thinking. He's incredibly articulate. He's a deep thinker. He zooms in on I mean he obsesses about soil all all of the things in the sustainability conversation are connected and there's not one simple answer to anything and if he makes you think more deeply and challenges the status quo I'm all for that. Um, hi Julia um, thanks very much for for having me on um, so yes I'm very interested in the words that we use and the framings we use because I think they're really important you know if you use 
the wrong framings to discuss things, you direct people in the wrong direction. And very often we use framings which were established by people who don't have the same interests as we have. If we're trying to protect the living planet, we should think carefully about the words we use that can be best deployed for that purpose. And a lot of the words we've inherited from people whose aim wasn't necessarily to protect the living planet, it wasn't necessarily to destroy it, but just to describe it, say, um, are really not fit for purpose. They're an absolute disaster. And let's start with the word environment. What the hell is the environment? It conjures up no pictures in the mind. It doesn't mean anything at all. So people can sort of dismiss the environment because you can't picture it. It's just not there in front of you. So this is why I use words which do conjure pictures, such as the living planet or the natural world, where you can see something, you can feel the thing that is being discussed. Um, environment is this dead, empty word. We should just stop using it. We can use it as an adjective, environmental issues, that's okay. But if we're talking about a noun, if it's a noun with a definite article in front of it, the environment, then that's a just terrible framing. Same applies to climate change, which is an almost comically mild term for this existential crisis we face. It's like calling an invading army unexpected visitors. And so this is why I use climate breakdown or climate chaos. Um, and there's a whole series of these awful, awful terms, sites of special scientific interest, which are meant to be descriptions of our nature sites, places that people love. But no, no, not only if you're a scientist. It's only of interest if you're a scientist. And it's such a mouthful. You know, who wants to preserve a site of special scientific interest? I want to reserve, a, a preserve a beautiful place, a beautiful ecosystem, a lovely habitat, whatever, but not a site of special scientific interest. I can't even say it. And even the word nature reserve, you know, if you say someone's reserved, you know, they're, they're cold and distant. It's a cold and distancing term. There was an old Native American joke. I, um, we used to like the white man, but now we have our reservations. Um, playing on, on, on that sort of, you know, dual, dual meaning of, of that term. Um, and and it again, it distances us from the thing that we should be attached to, the thing that we should be close to. Um, we talk about fish stocks as if the only purpose of, of fish is to be an economic resource for us, rather than fish populations or, or marine ecosystems. And in fact, you know, we talk about fisheries biology as opposed to marine ecosystems. We talk about maximum sustainable yield as opposed to not completely trashing the oceans or, or whatever, you know, it, it, we're constantly using terms which undermine the messages that we are trying to put out. And, and we have to think for ourselves. When people aren't using their own words, they're not thinking their own thoughts. And we really have to rethink this whole thing. I mean, we've inherited philosophies, ethics, language, which are just not fit for the 21st century. They offer us no guidance because we have different ethical conundra to those faced in, in previous centuries. And many of our great ethicists, great philosophers, actually overlooked a remarkable number of issues. 
in the 18th century, you could scarcely find a moral philosopher who would condemn slavery. You know, there were one or two, but the great majority, including some of the most famous ones, were perfectly happy with slavery. They either ignored it altogether or they justified it. It's, it's, it's an astonishing situation, but we have a similar situation now with you know, many of the leading lights of our philosophy completely ignore environmental issues. So we need a new moral compass. We need new ethics. And above all else, we need new language. And of course, I need to ask you about the word regenesis. Regenesis is a strange word for me because I, it was one of those words where you think you've dreamt it up. And perhaps I did dream it up, but then I looked it up and found that actually it's been used since the 19th century. But because I was playing with these concepts surrounding regenerative agriculture, and it has to be said that regenerative has become a bit like sustainable. It's one of these words which is just tacked on to any practice at all as a form of greenwashing, you know, in the same way that you know, we used to have this thing called sustainability, and then it became sustainable development, and then it became sustainable growth, and then it became sustained growth, which is the exact opposite of sustainability. But it was that term just evolving to the point of meaninglessness as it was used for greenwashing. And um, regenerative farming, unfortunately, is going the same way because there's no clear definition of it, and it's just tacked on to existing practice. You know, whatever we're doing, that's regenerative. So um, I think of uh, regenerative ranching, formerly known as ranching. And, um, and so there is a real danger of, of losing that focus. But, but I thought regenesis is quite a fun word to play with. It does sort of speak to what regenerative should be, but often isn't. But it's also got that sort of sense of starting again. You know, so like, right, let's have a new genesis. Um, let's, let's, let, let's have... Have, have a sort of new origin story about, you know, how we got to where we are and then what needs to change. And, and I and think, I, sorry. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, I was just going to say, I think it's great. And also to say, it's really the food systems that we need. If we, if we speak to that, because I think people don't realise the role that food systems play. No, no. And, and it's crucial and huge, but yeah, people aren't seeing it yet. <laughs> So I would always encourage all to listen to George Monbiot as much as possible, read his columns, read his books, and you can catch his TED Talks. He's described by TED as a professional troublemaker, and we certainly need more of those. OK, so we're nearly at time, and I'm going to call this first episode a success, hopefully with the definitions of the words you've given us we will be able to move forward with a greater understanding about what those mean, because I'm sure they're going to crop up time and time again in future episodes. Um, we said that we wanted to entertain people, but you also feel that they should be doing some homework if they want to as well. Yes, I'm going to put together a list if people want to read a little bit more, watch some documentaries. I'll make some recommendations online. And, uh, you know, more than anything, just engage with friends, family, colleagues about some of the themes we've discussed. That's the, more dialogues, less monologues. That's what the world needs. OK, so and also I would say if there was any message that was coming out of this, that is you as an individual are not going to save the planet. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best, Simon. OK, um, you as in people as individuals are not going to save the planet but if they are aware of what is positive and what is negative and if they modify their behavior 
in a, in a small way, that is leading to a bigger impact from everybody doing that. Save the planet is a big, big, overwhelming task. And this is, this is where language comes in. If you can just reduce your negative impact and up your positive impact, that's all we can hope for. Okay, so remember that out there. Whatever you're doing, wash up that cup that you've just had that coffee in listening to us. Don't put it in the dishwasher. Actually, that's we'll have another conversation. Hand washing can take more resources than dishwashers. Stay tuned. <laughs> Always something with you. Always something with you. <laughs> <laughs>